So we are moving through the book of Exodus. We're looking at Moses. We're looking at uh, Aaron today. And uh, they're going to go down. They're going to they're talk with Pharaoh because God has sent them down. And uh, Moses has uh, said, I don't want to go alone. So he says, okay, I'll send your brother along. And Aaron's going with Moses. And uh, they're going to basically, we're going to see some, uh, some really dark things happening in Egypt. We're going to see the plagues. And we're going to talk a little bit about those. But what I want you to see uh, this weekend is this, that in our universe, in the world we live in, there's certain laws that are embedded within our world. There are physical laws. There are spiritual laws. There are relational laws. There's all kinds of moral laws. There's, there's just all these laws that are kind of woven into our universe. And when we follow these laws... Generally, life will go well. But when we violate them, things don't go well. And, and I'm going to prove that. I'm going to show that to you because this isn't something that's just happened to, you know, happening now. It's something that was, has been going on ever since the beginning of the creation. And so we're going to see some parallels between the um, plagues and the creation. And we're going to see uh, some interesting things. I'm hoping that if I do my job well this weekend that you will be amazed by the Word of God. Oftentimes people say, well, I like the New Testament. I really don't like the Old Testament. And what I'm going to try to show you this weekend is the, the New Testament owes a lot to the Old Testament. In fact, there's a lot you will not understand in the New Testament unless you get a grasp of the Old Testament. And they're not vying for, uh, you know, better. I'm better than you. They really go hand in hand, and you're going to see that. I hope you'll see that very dramatically this weekend. So let's, let's look at that this weekend. Um, we're going to follow Moses and Aaron, as I said, and they're going to go down to Egypt. And uh, we're going to jump into Exodus chapter 5. And I just want to read the, the first couple of verses, and that'll get us started. Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. So their, their command by God was to go down to Egypt and tell the Pharaoh to let the people go. Not just let them go, but let them go to the wilderness so that they could worship the Lord. Secondly, we see something very interesting about the Pharaoh. He's uh, a religious pluralist. Now, what do I mean by that? <clears throat> Pharaoh asks Moses a very interesting question. He says, oh, so your God told you to come down and tell me to let all these Hebrew people go. Well, who is your God? I don't know him. Is he the God of the Nile? Is he the God of the moon? Is he the God of fertility? Which God are we talking about? Because I have multiple gods. Our people worship multiple gods. And so that's why we say he was a religious pluralist. And, and in our society today, whether you know it or not, in our American pop culture society, we live in a religious pluralistic society. And this is how it goes. This is, you've heard this over and over and over. You may have heard it from your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, and it'll go something like this. You believe in Jesus? Good for you. 
You believe in Buddha? Good for you. You believe in Muhammad? Good for you. Good for you. And in our, but our pop culture says something along with that. Believe in Muhammad. Believe in Buddha. Believe in Jesus. Believe in God. Whatever you want God to be, believe in Him. But stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. Don't you dare say that your belief is better than my belief. Don't make your belief exclusive. The one, the only true one. Don't do that. Because you're, you don't have a right to do that. Now, here's the problem with that view. When you say, and that's exactly what you, and you've, you... Some of you have heard this. Some people have... You've shared about Jesus. Well, that's good for you. And then you start sharing the exclusivity of Jesus. And they go, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. You don't get a right to tell me that your belief is better than what I believe. Right? And so, stop for a minute and think about that. Just the fact that you're saying you don't get a right to say that your religion is better uh, is an exclusive view in and of itself, right? You're basically saying, my rule is that no religion is exclusive. No religion is better than another. Okay, well, that's an exclusive rule. So you, by, by what you're even saying, you're violating your own principle. Do you get what I'm saying? You can't say to a person... You can believe this, but you can't say it's better than me. Well, what you've just done is you've said that your belief that no religion is better than another is the best one. So you've just violated the rule that you just laid down. Here's the point. When you're exclusive, you're exclusive. And so that's kind of what we live in. We live in a culture that basically says you can't be exclusive. You can't say that your religion is better than my religion. Your belief is better than mine even though the rule that you're basing that on is an exclusive rule. And so that's kind of the world we live in, isn't it? Um, what people don't realize is that any belief that is exclusive is exclusive, even one that claims you can't be exclusive. Now, we all have a view of spiritual reality. No matter who we are, there is no neutrality. You know, somebody who says, well, I don't believe in God. Well, that's a religious view. Whether you want to believe it or not, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, you're saying there is no God. That's a religious belief. Now, you don't want to be painted in that corner, but essentially that's the world we live in. Now, I want to say a little bit about the, the plagues. So, the plagues kind of go for a number of chapters. There's ten plagues. We're not going to go and look at each and every plague and kind of analyze it and say what's going on here. We're going to kind of do a 20,000 foot view because we don't have time to do it. But I want to just, uh, just, we don't have a time to do a deep dive. I just want to kind of skim over it a little bit. But I want to talk about the purpose of the plagues because I think that's essentially what we need to get at. Why did God use the plagues? What was the point of using the plagues? Because a lot of people don't like the plagues. They struggle with it. And, and really, what triggered the plagues in the beginning was Pharaoh's question. What was his question? Let's go back. Pharaoh's question says, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. So this is what triggers the plagues. Pharaoh basically says, I don't know the Lord you're talking about. So he's going to learn about who Yahweh is, who the Lord is, Okay. And so, let's jump down to chapter 7, verse 14. 
chapter 7, verse 14, we see what goes on in the midst of the plagues. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to the Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand uh, the staff that was changed into a snake. You can read about that in an earlier encounter that uh, Moses had with uh, God at the burning bush. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With a staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. All right, so uh, I think in your notes I have uh, like a little couple of blanks so we can go through and just talk about very quickly about the, the, the plagues. The first thing, the first plague we see is the Nile is turned to blood. Now, we don't have to be real um, literal. You can be if you want to, and that's okay. It doesn't matter for the, uh, the authenticity and the inspiration of the Scripture. Essentially, uh, there are word pictures that are used, but let's just say that the river was turned to blood. Uh, then frogs are everywhere. That's the second plague. Gnats, the third plague. Flies, the fourth plague. This is getting good, isn't it? <laughs> Livestock are, uh, are decimated in the, in the fifth plague. Boils break out in the sixth plague. Then there's a deadly hailstorm in the seventh. There's a locust invasion in the eighth. And then three days of darkness. And then the tenth plague is the last plague. And it's the plague of the angel of death, or what we would call, the Jewish people would call, the Passover. That's the last plague. And that's one of the major um, times of remembrance for the Jewish people, the Passover. They celebrate, you hear the word Passover. The Passover goes back to this event where the angel of death passed over the houses that had the doorposts painted in blood, where the animal was sacrificed and everyone in the house was safe. The firstborn was safe in that house. Now, what are some lessons that we can learn from the plagues? I want to talk about three lessons that we can learn about the plagues. The first one is this. The plagues reveal, reveal who God is. Now, we need to remember that the people, the Hebrew people, don't know, they don't know who Yahweh is. They don't know who the Lord is. They don't know him. Uh, Pharaoh, from his own words, doesn't know which God he's, you know, Moses and Aaron are talking about. Uh, even Moses and Aaron really don't know this God. Remember, it's been 400 plus years since Joseph. So this, a lot of time has passed. So there are generation after generation after generation that have grown up in Egypt who do not know the Lord. All they know is the God of the Nile, the God of the fertility, the God of the moon, the God of the sun. Uh, that Those are the gods that they know. They had been slaves for a long time in the land. The, the Pharaoh had never heard of the one true God. He had only learned uh, and heard of the many gods of, of the land. Now, what Exodus says is very interesting because it goes contrary to what our pop culture says. Remember I said earlier that our pop culture says, you can believe whatever you want, but don't make your belief exclusive. Don't make your belief exclusive. Well, the Bible very clearly makes God, ultimately Yahweh, and Jesus exclusive. Let me show you that. If, if you um, 
Write this verse down, Exodus chapter 9, verse 14. Let me read it to you. Because God is speaking to uh, Moses, uh, or through Moses, and he says this to Pharaoh. I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people. And then he says this, so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. So that you may know that there's no one like me in all the earth. That's pretty exclusive. That's pretty, that's super exclusive. What God is saying is, I don't care what, what gods you have worshipped up till now. I'm the God of gods. I'm over all of the gods. I am the God, the only God. So that's the, the most exclusive claim that you could ever make. In our religious pluralistic society, it's okay to hold a belief, as long, but you're not allowed to claim that your belief is superior to others. But that's exactly what the Bible teaches. Let me give you a couple of New Testament verses that say exactly that. Uh, you know one very, very quickly, and some of you have been thinking about this verse, where Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm going to go away, but I will send you another comforter. And you know, Thomas says, well, how can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, exclusive, except through me. Okay, that's exclusive, all right? Let me give you another one. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by men by which we must be saved. There's no other name where we must be saved. So that's very exclusive. The Christian message is absolutely exclusive. It is not one of many. It is the message. Now, some people will say, well, that's, that's pretty arrogant. That will make you uh, judge other people. That will make you feel superior to other people. I'm going to address that in, in a few minutes. But uh, uh, for now, just, just understand what I'm trying to show you, that from the Old Testament and from the New Testament, the, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, and we know him to be Jesus, is making very exclusive claims. Not just to be one of many, but to be the one and only. Okay, That's really important to understand. So God reveals himself. Uh, or the plagues reveal who God is. Secondly, the plagues reveal how God works his miracles through natural processes and laws. It's very interesting. As you read through the plagues, there's something that's going on there that is more than just... They're not just random things. And some people, to try to tie them together to make sense of them, would say, well, what he's doing is he's attacking the Nile. They worship the Nile. He's attacking frogs. They worship frogs. He's attacking, you know, the, the moon got dark. You know, they worship the moon. Uh, so all he's doing is he's randomly picking these gods and saying, I'm better than that, I'm better than that, I'm controlling that, I'm over that. I, I think that's true, but I think there's more going on than that. Look at the natural progression of what's going on. It's very interesting. So what's the first plague? The first plague is, that the Nile River turns to blood or is blood red. doesn't really matter. The point of it, if you, you know, you can, you can take it literally or you can say it's hyperbole, it doesn't really matter. That's not the point that you should argue and get all bent out of shape about. What you need to see that's clearly being communicated is the ecosystem of the Nile River is absolutely destroyed, destroyed to the point that all the fish are dying. And what do the frogs do? They go, 
we can't live here anymore. <laughs> so the frogs, the frogs, the frogs start, you know, coming out of the river, and they can't live there anymore. Uh, they, the fish are dying. Millions of frogs who used to live in the Nile, they, they come out. They're found everywhere. They're in your bed. They're in the oven. I don't know why they're in the oven. They're in your shoes. I mean, you put your shoes on, you know, I mean, it's like, yeah, you know, great. You know, they're, you know, they're all over the place. And then what happens to the frogs? Well, they die. And they stink. And they rot, right? And then what happens next? Next thing you have is you have the plague of the gnats and the flies. You ever come across a dead body? I don't mean a human dead body. I mean like a, an animal or something. There's flies all over it. And, and so you have a rotting, you have these rotting, stinking carcasses. And, and, and it's an ecological disaster going around. And it's, it's not just by the river. It's all, the point is, it's all over Egypt. This is going on all over Egypt because the frogs are everywhere. And then they're dying. And then the flies and the gnats are coming. So the whole system is getting destroyed. Then what happens next? Five and six, what are five and six? You start having plagues. You start having disease, skin disease, right? Because there's rotting things, there's dying things, there's disease being spread by the flies and gnats. There's all this, this is being, so so one epidemic destroys the livestock, uh, uh, epidemic destroys livestock. Another one destroys people. Various skin disease. And, and you go, okay, so this is pretty natural, really. Once the Nile River begins to, you know, the ecosystem is tanked there, then it's kind of starts wheeling. A whole bunch of bad things are going on here. Yeah, I know there's one of them is hail. I get that. So just understand the point here that, that, that there's a, that God doesn't actually have to do super duper miracles all the time that many times what he does is he just takes his ecosystem and he crashes it and when he crashes his ecosystem it's not good for anyone around in that ecosystem that's essentially what's going on in Egypt now stop and think for a moment if if you were to if you if if God was trying to prove that he was God you think he might be a little more dramatic I mean think about this why does he go to all the trouble of, of, of doing it this way? When he could easily just say, Moses, go down to Egypt, take Aaron if you need him, and walk into Pharaoh and say, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. And then if he says no, here's all you need to do. Take your staff, point it at the guy standing next to Pharaoh. And when you do that, I'll light him up like a candle. And you say, are you ready to let him go yet? And then you just point at the next guy and light him up. Maybe you start farther away and you move towards Pharaoh, right? And after three or four or five or six of these guys are just burning in front of him, he might go, yeah, okay, you got me. I'm, I'm ready to do it. Well, why didn't, why didn't God do that? I mean, why go through all the things with the plagues? Well, I think part of it is, so the people understand that God is over all of creation. That's important for the people to know that. That he's not the God of creation. He is over creation. 
I think there, there, there's another thing going on. And some scholars, and I think they may be right, they believe that what's going on here is a deconstruction of the creation. Now think about that. What happened in the creation in Genesis 1 and 2? God created a perfect ecosystem. He had a place where, where there was land, there was plants, there was water, there was sea life, there was a perfect garden. He placed man and woman in the garden. He placed the animals and the birds, and they were all working together. They were, the ecosystem was working together. Everybody, everything was going great, right? There was light from darkness. There was, you know, began with darkness, and out of the darkness came life, you know, came the, the waters, and then the sky, and the moon, and the sun, and all these different things are going on. And then God placed land, and then God placed things on the land and things in the water. Then God placed the garden and a man and woman in the garden. So God created. So that's what he does in Genesis. He creates a, a, a coherent, harmonious, beautiful, independent, whole creation, right? What's he doing in Egypt? In Egypt, he is destroying it. You see, God created an ecosystem with people and natural laws to govern them. Now, what was the warning that God, remember the warning when God had the perfect, you know, he created a perfect place for the first people, Adam and Eve? What was, what was the one warning that he gave to them? He says, don't, you, can, you can have anything in the garden except don't eat from that tree. And he said, what would happen? The day that you eat from that tree, you will surely die. Now, what happened after they ate from the tree? Well, what's the one thing when you read that? You go, well, wait a minute. They never died. <laughs> oh, yeah, they did. You know how they died? They didn't die physically right away. They began to die physically. But they died spiritually. They died relationally. You see what happens when God confronted them? What happened? Did, did Adam defend Eve? Did Eve defend Adam? No. Adam threw Eve under the bus. Eve threw the, the snake under the bus, right? And so everybody's blaming everybody. So the relationship now is, is, is broken. Spiritually, they're separated from God. Physically, they begin to die. So, so the whole thing is, is being destroyed. The creation is being destroyed. Now look at what you have in Exodus chapters 5 through 10. We see the days of creation being undone. The waters are polluted. The animals and plant life are dying. Disease is spreading. And uh, you come to the second last plague. What was the second to the last plague? The moon was dark. The sun and the moon were dark for how long? Three days. Three days. So it's creation is being destroyed in Egypt. What God is doing is he's deconstructing the, the exodus or, or the, the creation. And so as we get to that, we see that it's just like the beginning of creation. We see darkness over the land. Very interesting. Now, what's going on here? Well, God is showing Pharaoh. He's showing the Egyptians and he's showing his own people that he controls the world, the creation. He, he, he is showing them that there are natural laws embedded in his universe and that he is over them. Now, how does that apply to us? How does that apply to us? Here's the part where I hope we'll take just a moment and say, okay, so how did, so that's interesting theologically. It's interesting looking at the Bible and seeing the themes and stuff like that. But what difference does that make in my life today? 
And I want to show you that, that it makes a huge difference. When we violate the natural laws that he has embedded in creation, your life, just like life in Egypt began to fall apart, your life will fall apart. Let me give you a few examples of that. Uh, when you violate the natural embedded laws of this world, you're going to pay the price. Here's, here's a couple of examples. If you live an, an unhealth, in an unhealthy manner, let's, let's say you smoke, you drink to excess, you overeat, you don't exercise, you have multiple sexual partners, you're absolutely opening yourself up for physical destruction. You're opening yourself up for disease. You're opening yourself up for just a tremendous amount of issues. Do you know that in our culture today, in our American culture today, uh, ob obesity is going up in a dramatic rate? That's going to create huge issues for a lot of people. And that's why you go to your doctor and your doctor says to you, right? He says, you need to lose some weight. Because it's going to affect you. You might end up with diabetes. You might end up with, uh, with heart disease. You might end up with joints that weren't meant to take the weight they're taking. All these things going on. Or you're, you're, you're smoking and the doctor says, you know, you've you got to stop because it, you're, you're gonna, it's killing you. You, you. you can't breathe. You have emphysema. Or, you know, the STDs that we have through our culture today. And, and this is, all this is going on is saying that, w the, that God has some physical laws in the universe. And when we violate them, we're going to pay the price. That's what he's saying. Let me give you another one. Some men will live for their work and their career because it defines them. One of the first things that happens when men meet each other is, tell me your name. And then the next thing, maybe what, what, what sport do you follow? And then maybe they'll get to the third question. One of the top three questions is, what do you do? What do you do? Why? Because a man is defined by his work. He's defined by his career. That's who, where he gets his identity. And that's why many men who have worked for many, many years in the same place, the same company, have been faithful in that. When they're fired, they go, what do I do? Or they're laid off. They say, what do I do? Who am I? Where's my life going? But let's just say that you live for your work and your career. You spend all your time and your energy there and not with your family. What you will find is you're going to jeopardize your health, number one, because you're going to work your brains out and you're going to worry about a lot of things and you're going to be you, things you can't control and it's going to be a spiral out of control. So your health is going to struggle. You'll probably lose your family in the process of it. Do I have to start singing Cats in the Cradle for you right now? I mean, really, right? Isn't that what the song is all about? Hey, someday, son, we're going to get together, but not today, right? I'm too busy. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And the next thing you know, dad is old, son is a young man, and he's doing the same thing dad did, and he sees the curse. It's embedded in our universe. See, in essence, when you give yourself to anyone or anything other than God, you will reap a whirlwind and find a darkness in your life. So, so this is, I think, what we can learn from the plagues. That, that God is showing us that there are certain laws in this universe. You know, some people, you know, when you look at the New Testament and Jesus is healing somebody, we often look at it and say, well, that's a miracle. That's a miracle. Look, he took somebody who, who was blind from birth and now they can see. What an incredible miracle. 
Do you know what that is? Do you know what uh, the, the giving somebody sight who is blind from birth is? It's turning back the curse. Blindness is a curse. It's not natural to be blind. It's natural to see. So what Jesus is doing there, he, he, is, he is turning back the curse on that person. He's bringing that person to where they need it to be, where they should be. Well, all I'm saying is that there are laws in the universe, and when we violate them, when we don't live in accordance with them, and, and especially when we don't live in accordance with our God, our Savior, our Creator, then it brings darkness into our life, and things don't go generally well in our lives. Here, let me give you one, one last lesson we can learn from the plagues. The plagues reveal the incredible grace of God to mankind. There is a salvation purpose behind the plagues. What God is trying to do is He's trying to wake His people up. He's trying to wake the Egyptians up. He's trying to wake the Pharaoh up. He's essentially trying to wake Moses up. Because Moses has to understand who this God is that is sending him on this task. He doesn't really know who it is. He's going to learn through the next uh, few years. He's going to figure out who this God is. And so will the people. But I want to read you a passage from Exodus chapter 9. It's kind of interesting. This is what God says. This is the grace of God in the midst of the plagues. In other words, God is going to say, and I'll tell you what he's going to say, then we'll read it. God is going to say, I could have done it a lot harder than this, but I chose to do it this way. I chose to show grace. I chose to show mercy. And here's what he says, Exodus chapter 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so that they may know there is no one like me on all the earth. Now notice what he says next. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this purpose that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. In other words, God is saying, I'm showing you mercy here. You may not feel like it, but it can be a lot worse than it is. And I'm not doing this so you'll just submit to me out of fear. I just want you to understand who the God over the universe is. It's not the river, it's not the moon, it's not the sun, it's not fertility, it's me. Now there's an interesting moment. So as the plagues kind of kick in a little bit more and more and more, it's very interesting what happens. What happens is the counselors around Pharaoh begin to go, they begin to see all these plagues happening as Moses predicts them. And sometimes you'll see this as you read the story, sometimes the Pharaoh uh, his counselors are able to duplicate certain things, but it gets to the point where they go, yeah, we can't do this. This is, be, this is above our pay grade. This is, we can't do this. But here's what's interesting. They begin to listen to Moses. They begin to listen to his. Let me read it to you. It's very interesting. So the, in the midst of the plagues, there's all these counselors that are around Pharaoh, right? And those, it says, those officials of Pharaoh who fear the word of the Lord 
hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside because of the hail. God said there was going to be a hailstorm. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. So you see the, the effect it's having. These plagues are having an effect on the people working for Pharaoh. They're basically saying, you know what? Whatever you think about this Moses guy, his God's the real deal. And we better get our, our servants and our, and our cattle out and get them undercover because they're going to die if we don't. This hail is going to be a bad hailstorm. And, and so they, some of them do and some of them don't. And my point is this, that God warns us and God says, watch out, stop this, don't do this. He doesn't do it because he's a cosmic killjoy. He does it to save us. And we obey those laws, good things happen. So they were preserved. <laughs> they were smart. They were wise. The grace of God is always extended to everyone who will repent and turn to God. And these Egyptians were spared. Now, I wanted to talk about this, this final, this darkness. So it says that the sun and the moon were dark in Egypt for three days. Don't know how it happened. Not really concerned about the scientific details, but it says they, there was darkness over Egypt for three days. So the, this is the plague right before the Passover. There's darkness over the land of Egypt for three days. Okay? So the sun and the moon are dark for three days over Egypt. Right? We talked about that. Now, centuries later, there was darkness over the land. Let me read you that passage right now. Matthew chapter 27. Jesus is on the cross. And it says this. From noon until three in the afternoon. How many hours is that? Three hours. How many days was it? Three days. How many hours? Three hours. Okay. From noon till three in the afternoon, darkness came over the, all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're told, as you read that account, that the earth shook, the rock split, and there was three hours of darkness. What is happening? What is happening is on the cross, Jesus Christ became the enemy of God. He suffered the plagues. He experienced the darkness. He was cut off from God. He experienced absolute agony for you and for me. Now, what's interesting to this is, and we're not going to talk about it this week, next week we're going to talk about the Passover. The Passover was where they took the blood of, of a lamb and they, they painted the blood over the doorpost. Whatever house had the paint on the doorpost the firstborn of that house was spared. If you were in a house that didn't have that done, that firstborn died. That's the Passover. Okay? Jesus is the one who became our Passover. He's the lamb who became the Passover lamb, the Paschal lamb, the Passover lamb for us. And right before the, the Passover, there was three, uh, three days of darkness. And right before Jesus gave his life and said, it is finished, there was three hours of darkness. Because he's the Passover lamb who's giving his life on the cross. 
You see, Jesus did this to become our ultimate exodus. The rod of judgment came down upon him. The plagues came on Jesus. The darkness came down on Jesus. Now, this is where you should see the Old Testament and the New Testament have to go, back, get, go together. They were meant to go together. What Jesus is doing is he is making us go back to Exodus to see that these plagues, the darkness over the earth, the Passover lamb is pointing to him when he would experience darkness and there would be darkness over the land. When you see darkness in the Bible, it means there is something very, very bad going on. And when Jesus hung on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have the plagues come upon me? Well, they came upon him because of us. We were the ones that deserved the plagues. But we didn't get them. Now, what Jesus did was he did for us what we could not do. There's a lot of people in this community who say, well, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to believe in God. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to do whatever I can. I'm going to try to be better than most people. So we try to do those things. That's what religion tells you. Do, do what you can. Do as much as you can. Work at it. Do your best. And hopefully you'll do enough. Right? That's what we're told. Right? But the world religions handle judgment in, a very, different, in very different ways. For example, Buddhism says that you need to live a life of compassion. Or you'll be, and, and they basically say, if you don't live a life of compassion, you get to do it over again. You're going to re, re, reincarnate, recycle, and you're going to do it again until you get it right. And you're going to do it again until you get it right. You're going to do it again until you do it right. And essentially, one day, maybe, one, somewhere down the road, you'll do it right. And you'll reincarnate. You, you, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll achieve, right? So the, the point is, um, you'll finally liberate yourself. If you're good enough, you'll liberate yourself from the circle of reincarnation. Essentially, that's what it comes down to. So if, you know, you talk to somebody who believes in reincarnation, and you go... You know, one of the first things I would say to them is still in that circle, huh? You know, still haven't gotten out of the circle, huh? Because essentially, if you're out of the circle of reincarnation, you've kind of arrived, right? But that's what, re, that's what, um, that's what the Buddhism says. Every other religion says this. Here are the standards. Live up to them. But what does Christianity say? Very, very different message. Christianity says, I can't live up to the standards. So the judge himself came down and lived above and beyond the standards for me and bore the judgment that was meant for me. I can't live up to the standards. So the God left his throne and came to earth and his name is Jesus. And he lived the life I should have lived and he died the death I should have died. And he took the punishment that was meant for me. He took the plagues. He took the abandonment that he got from the Father. And when darkness came over the land... It was the darkness that should have come up over, over me, but it didn't come over me because it came over him. You see, I can't save myself. I need a savior. That's the difference between religion and Christianity. Christianity basically says, I'm not good because I work at it. I'm good because Jesus accomplished it for me and took my place. It's a very different message. And by the way, there are branches of Christianity that still teach today, work harder, do your best, try to make it. 
That's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity says you'll never make it, you'll never do enough, you'll never achieve enough, you'll never be good enough. That's why God sent a rescue party of one down for you. And that's why Jesus gave his life on the cross for you. That's why he was abandoned for you. That's why the plagues were poured down upon him. That's why he went through it. And when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that we wouldn't have to be. So remember I said I was going to come back to the point and I said, you know what? When you say that a Christianity is exclusive, that'll make you proud. That'll make you arrogant. That'll make you judgmental. No, it doesn't for this reason. How am I accepted by God? Is it what I do? No. It's what Jesus did for me. The only thing I put on the table was my own sin, my own unworthiness, my own inability. I was drowning <laughs> you know it's like a lifeguard when when a lifeguard pulls you out and gives you you know resuscitation resets your life and it gives you life because you were drowning you you don't walk around bragging look at what i did i i i almost drowned so that i could be saved Right? Yeah, I mean, it's like you don't brag about that. You brag about the guy that saved you, the woman that saved you, the person that pulled you out, the person that, that you know, worked on your chest that gave you life. In a sense, we can't become arrogant. We don't become proud because we were saved. We were helpless. We are hopeless. We have nothing to brag about. What we are is grateful. What we are is broken. What we are is humbled. That's, that's, that's who we are. Because we realize that if he didn't come for me, I was dead. If he didn't give his life for me, I was dead. If, he, if the plagues didn't come on him, I didn't, have a, I didn't have a chance. If darkness didn't come on him, I would be in darkness. But because of him, I was rescued. I was forgiven. I was saved. I was made alive. I don't brag about it. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. It was gifted to me. And I can't believe it. And it breaks me down. And it breaks me up. It breaks my heart. So I don't become arrogant. I don't look at other people and say, I'm better than you. I say, I'm absolutely not better than anyone else on this planet. And I'm not any more deserving than anyone on this planet. And I don't know why God showed me grace, but he did. I'm so thankful. So grateful. That's what the gospel does. To a Christian. We have an exclusive claim that there is one God and one only one God. We have an exclusive claim that there's only one way. But we also understand that the way we get there is not through our own efforts, not through our own abilities. It came because someone, God's Son, came from heaven to earth. And did what we could not do for ourselves and rescued us. Pulled us out of the water. Gave us life. And in the process of giving us life, it cost him his life. You don't brag about that. You're amazed by it. You're broken up by it. You're stunned by it. And when you begin to understand that, you're starting to understand the gospel. So the exodus, the plagues, point 
to Jesus. When darkness came over the land, and when the Passover lamb went upon the cross for you and said those last words, it is finished. Do you know him? Don't leave this place without knowing Jesus, who is the only one who can give you life. Let's pray. Father, we are not worthy, but Jesus is. We deserve the plagues, but he took them. We deserve the darkness, and he experienced it. He gave his life so that we might live. Father, help us to understand the importance, and help us to understand that we live in a world that has embedded spiritual, physical, relational principles that when we violate them, they bring darkness into our life. They, they, they deconstruct our lives. But when we live in harmony with them, they bring life and hope and joy and peace, and all the things that you want us to experience. I pray that the Holy Spirit might take whatever we've heard this weekend and apply it to our individual lives. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.